In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear Reverend Father, dear brothers and seminarians, dear faithful, in the epistles of St. Paul, we find very many striking expressions because St. Paul is so passionate and vivid in his writings. And this certainly makes St. Paul very quotable. Many of his pithy phrases seem to be uh, the perfect accompaniment to uh, a given situation or a particular literary context. And it's because of this fact, and this is one of the reasons why uh, the church herself likes to use the words of St. Paul as a means to sort of elicit in her children um, the right dispositions for a given liturgical occasion. And there are specific sentences of St. Paul that the church wants her children to repeat over and over again. Uh, She, as it were, wants these phrases to be engraved upon our memories for them to really become part of our lives and part of our very being. One of these sentences of St. Paul is found in the opening words of today's epistle. In the Vulgate, these words read, Nemini quidquam debiatis, nisi ut invicem delegatis, qui enum diligit proximum legem implevit. Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And in the words of the Vulgate, um, the, the translation of St. Jerome has a certain poetical quality uh, that makes those words all the more memorable. There's a certain rhythm and, and rhyme to those words. Well, the church has... Um, us, we who pray the divine office, she has us repeat these words every Sunday after Pentecost at the midday office because she wants to remind us of the importance of charity. She wants us to place before our eyes the second great commandment which St. Paul repeats in this epistle, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For St. Paul, in today's epistle, he, he points out how the fulfillment of this commandment is, in fact, the very fulfillment of the law. Love is the whole of the law. And we know that when a Jew refers to the law, he really, the main thing he's referring to is the law promulgated by Moses and sort of embodied in the Ten Commandments. The first three of the Ten Commandments, as you know, concern the love of God, and the last seven concern the love of neighbor. And that's why Love really is the fulfillment of the law. And so St. Paul, to prove that by loving our neighbor we fulfill the law, he goes through the uh, last six commandments in order to point out how they all concern a certain uh, love for our neighbor. Thou shalt not commit adultery is number six. Thou shalt not kill, number five. Thou shalt not steal, number seven. Thou shalt not bear false witness, number eight. And thou shalt not covet, nine and ten. And these commandments are really just particular instances of a general rule, also called the golden rule, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so by fulfilling that general rule, we fulfill the law itself. In this context, I think it might be helpful for me to try to clear up what might be a point of confusion Because on the face of things, we might be tempted to think that our modern society is very Christian, that it's focused precisely on this fulfillment of the law. 
this love of neighbor that St. Paul speaks about could easily be found on the lips of someone in the world. The world seems to be constantly preaching love of neighbor, uh, especially how important it is that we not harm one another. It would seem that, um, yes, the, today's masters of virtue signaling always have on their lips the very words pronounced by St. Paul in today's epistle, love does no evil to a neighbor. You must not commit hate crimes. Um, you, you must not harm anyone else. Certainly the words love and hate appear very frequently in the vocabulary today. And you could take the most extreme liberal and ask him or her, you know, should we love our neighbor? And they would say, of course, we must love our neighbor. And if we further added, does that mean uh, that we should do no evil to our neighbor? And they would say, absolutely, naturally, we should not do any evil to our neighbor. And as a result, on the face of things, it would seem that, that a radical socialist would, would be in complete agreement with the most devout Christian. But since we know this is not the case, and in fact, the way we think is, is very, very different from the normal secularist out there, uh, we, we know that our world is, is really no longer Christian, and that mainstream thought is, is much closer to being anti-Christian than, than being Christian, we must say that, well... In fact, what's happening is that we're understanding the same words in a very different sense. That we have come to a point where we as, as Catholics and, and they as, as secularists cannot even agree upon the meanings of very basic words. And specifically, the word that, that we understand very differently today is the meaning of the word evil. Do no evil to one's neighbor. We believe that. They believe that. But their understanding of evil and our understanding of evil is very different. We could ask someone, what do you mean by evil? What does, what does evil count for in your books? Well, I'll try to answer on their behalf and, and point out that Today's dominant ideology is the ideology of, of materialism. And materialism reduces all reality to mere matter. The only thing that exists is bodies. What is physical? There are no uh, immaterial souls. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing higher than just stuff, just mere material things. And if such is the case, then the only evil that really can exist is physical harm. Um, harm that's, that's done to, to bodies in some way. But the way in which the, the world understands physical harm, we, we must understand, is, is, is not so much bodily injuries, not so much inflicting a kind of injury, um, a corporeal injury on your body, um, because in, in many cases, secularists do not mind harming the body in, in given situations. So really for them, physical harm is not so much a question of injuring the body. It's more a question of injuring feelings, um, giving a person bad sensations, uh, causing their sense faculties to feel something unpleasant. 
That's kind of what doing evil to a neighbor is for them. Making your neighbor feel uncomfortable. Uh, Of course, they're against attacking someone. They're against striking someone in the face. They're against shooting and stabbing and, and, and all these acts of violence. But precisely because these acts of violence make someone uncomfortable. It's because they make someone uncomfortable that they're evil. Because there's other situations in which someone inflicts physical harm on another and they feel like it's necessary to inflict this physical harm in order to make that person feel comfortable. And if it's necessary to inflict physical harm to make someone feel comfortable, then in fact, in their books, that is a good thing. So, if, if someone feels uncomfortable with being a man, then it's good to mutilate his body to make him more like a woman. If someone is, is uncomfortable with his life, then it's good to put him in, in, to death, to euthanize him, in order to make him feel uh, less com- uh, uncomfortable, to, to relieve his discomfort. If a woman is uncomfortable with being pregnant, then it's good to kill the child in her womb, injure her own body and her maternal equipment at the same time, in order to relieve her discomfort. If, if someone gets relief from stress, from the stress of life, by, by smoking drugs, um, which, you know, drugs which destroy brain cells and makes one lose a sense of all purpose, then one should make this available to him, make it legal for him to do these things. So all of these examples are, are instances where physical harm is being inflicted upon someone, um, yet these, this infliction of physical harm on a person is seen as being good because it relieves some sort of discomfort that this person is having. So in the end, the principle for the materialist is this. Whatever makes you uncomfortable is evil, and whatever makes you comfortable is good. And from this, we can understand the materialist application of the law of one's neighbor For them, do no evil to one's neighbor really means never do anything that would make your neighbor feel uncomfortable. You must never condemn your neighbor. You must never disagree with your neighbor. You must not be intolerant of your neighbor. You must never stop your neighbor from doing what makes him or her feel right about themselves or feel comfortable around you or comfortable with the way that they're living. On the contrary, if your neighbor ever tells you that, that uh, having an abortion would make her feel good, then you must assist her. If, you're, if your neighbor says that, that smoking uh, dope gives, gives him or her relief, then you must encourage them in, in smoking it. If your neighbor says that leading a homosexual lifestyle is what makes them happy, then you have to show your approval. Otherwise, you would be doing evil to them. You would make them feel uncomfortable. And all of this makes perfect sense if you believe that your neighbor is simply a physical body with sensory powers. That all that is before you is a a merely sentient organism, but not um, someone who has a rational soul and an immortal, immaterial soul. 
Because the best thing that can happen to a physical body is for it to have good sensations and good emotions. And so to love someone else is to help them have these good feelings, these comfortable feelings at all times and places. Now, as you know, this understanding of evil and this understanding of the law of loving one's neighbor is completely contrary to the Catholic view and to the view of St. Paul. For us, people are much, much more than some mere pounds of sensory flesh. Human beings are creatures made in the image of God. We have immortal souls. And everything that we do in this life has a consequence for eternity. Immense consequences. We are made by God to know, love, and serve Him so as to be happy with Him in the next life. We are meant to beautify our souls in this life. We're meant to perfect our souls. We're meant to adorn them with virtues. Our perfection and happiness is not in being comfortable in this life, but rather in being holy. Uh, The primary good of our life is the good of our soul, not the good of our body. And if we really love our neighbor, as a consequence, we will seek the good primarily of our neighbor's soul, not the good of them feeling comfortable in a given situation. So when we hear St. Paul saying to us, do no evil to your neighbor, we primarily understand, do no sin to my neighbor, or do no sin on my neighbor. Because for us, really, evil and sin are the same thing. If we avoid inflicting physical harm on someone else, it's because it's sinful. It's offensive to God. So evil is not a question of feeling uncomfortable. It's a question of destroying souls. Sin is the act of turning a soul away from its good. And this is the worst thing that we can do to a person. And this is the worst thing that can happen to a person. So because this is our view of evil, of of what is bad we also have a completely different perception of how we should interact with our neighbor. We do not first and primarily look at what is going to make our neighbor comfortable, but rather at what is going to make our neighbor good and holy. And when we seek to do good to our neighbor, we uh, assist him to be virtuous. And really, as we all know, sometimes this requires that we make our neighbor feel a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it's necessary with charity to make our neighbor feel a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it requires that we be a bit intolerant. Sometimes it requires that we not approve of what our neighbor is doing, of how they're living their lives. So it's our Catholic view of charity towards our neighbor that motivates Uh, the great sensitivity that we have as Catholics for cooperating with our neighbor's sins. Because we love our neighbor, we do not want to assist our neighbor in the performance of any sin because we know that sin destroys our neighbor's soul. And so when we consult our catechism, um, as as you probably know, the, the catechism lists nine ways in which we can cooperate with the sin of our neighbor. Nine different ways. And we are invited to avoid all of these ways 
of cooperating with the sin of our neighbor. So I just want to, to go quickly through these nine ways in order to illustrate to us this Catholic perception of the duties we have of, of, of love of our neighbor and how we must be sensitive to anything, doing anything, that will lead our neighbor into sin. The first one is command. When you tell someone to do something wrong to someone else for your own behalf. Perhaps we use our position of authority, uh, such as a parent over his, over his children, or a teacher over the students. I want you to go steal this for me. I command you to go steal this for me. Or uh, you tell this person this lie on my behalf. The second one is counsel, which is a question of advice. We advise someone to do evil. Perhaps we say to someone, oh, that's okay. There's nothing wrong in doing that. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's all right. When we know, in fact, that there's something wrong. Or, you know, someone who says to, to a pregnant woman, you've got no choice. There's nothing else you can do. You've got no other options but, but to terminate your pregnancy. Perhaps we plant ideas in the mind of someone else. If you want to get revenge on this person... This is what you should do. This is what I would do in your situation in order to get the revenge that you deserve to get on this person who's done you an injustice. The third is consent. We are in a position of authority, of being a superior, and we're asked if it's okay to do this or that. Can I do this? Can I do that? And it's, we know it's wrong. We say, sure, no problem, go ahead. You can do it. The children ask the parents, can we watch this movie? We really want to watch this movie. And they just keep pestering the parents. Parents know it's a movie they, the children shouldn't be watching. The parents, they finally give in. They say, sure, just go watch the movie. Just leave me alone. The fourth is persuasion. When we use words of flattery, reproach, praise, or such like, to convince someone to do something wrong. And we often find this um, in the settings of, of teenagers or, or uni students who uh, are applying a certain peer pressure to one another. Um, you know, come on, you know, everyone's going to be there. Or, I know you're man enough to do this. We're all going to do this. You've got to be man enough like us. You've got to join in. And it's, it's something... That's wrong. There's, there's a certain persuasion. Number five is refuge. When you safeguard a wrongdoer, when you prevent him from being caught, or you help him to hide the fact that he's done wrong. Someone comes to you um, and solicits your help from preventing others from finding out that he's done a crime. And you know, this is, this is what the bishops are being accused of today with regards to these priest predators, so to providing them uh, a certain refuge and preventing the law from figuring out what's going on. Six is participation when you actually assist another to commit a crime. You drive the girl to the abortion clinic, you buy the drugs for, for the drug user, you back up the lying story of someone else, for instance. Number seven is silence. You have a duty to speak out against evil being done because of the office you hold. 
and yet you keep silence. You do not say anything. Eight is inaction. You're perhaps witnessing something that's, that's gone wrong, and because of your position, and this is important, because of your position, you have a duty to step in and stop the wrong from being done. Perhaps a, a father sees one child being beaten up by another and does nothing, or a teacher sees one child bullying another on the playground and does nothing, or, or what have you. And the person who is in a position of responsibility just does nothing. The ninth and final way to cooperate in the sin of another is by secrecy. When uh, someone has a duty to double someone in and inform on them, but he keeps the secret of the wrong to himself. So these are the nine ways of cooperating with the sin of another that we can find in our catechism. And we commit a sin because we're either assisting our neighbor to commit sin or we're failing to prevent him from committing a sin when we have a duty to prevent him. And the church precisely does not ask us to be tolerant in such situations. She does not ask us to be passive, to be approving, to say, well, my, my, my neighbor or my, my child, my peer, whoever it may be, is more comfortable if I just let them go. But because the church loves the soul of the neighbor and wants everyone to make it to heaven, she demands that we do what we can to prevent the sin. And she makes it a duty. And she, she indicates that it's sinful if we cooperate in any of these nine ways. So the, the whole difference between this love of neighbor that I've just explained and the secular love of neighbor is in that concept of evil. For us, a thing is evil when it is against the order that God has established. Whenever our neighbor tears down God's order, he offends God and injures himself, and we cannot assist him to offend God and injure himself. If we love him, we will not cooperate with him doing that. Whereas for the world, evil only happens when we feel uncomfortable. And so we have, in the eyes of the world, a duty to assist others in doing whatever they want to do to make themselves comfortable, even when it involves injuring themselves. And obviously, this is not a true love of our neighbor. You should never assist your friend to do something that is going to destroy him or her. That should be obvious. And it's it's this very, uh, when we say, perverse and false notion of evil, uh, wherein you, you can even call assisting someone to commit suicide as an act of love or assisting someone to uh, destroy the child in their womb as an act of love. St. Paul says to us, Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love does no evil to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfilling of the law. Let us, my dear faithful, let us love one another truly in this life. We must do good to one another by assisting one another to be virtuous. We must help one another to get to heaven. We must help one another to resist the temptations to do evil or to call evil good. And if we do these things, we will truly be loving our neighbor as ourselves.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.